Uh, as Anna said, my name, I'm the youth pastor here at Lakeview, and today we are going through da, 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 the book of Amos. So if you have your Bibles, try to find it with me. Uh, Amos. You were in Joel last week. It's the very next book, so if your bookmark is there, just flip a page or two over and you should be in the book of Amos. And uh, unfortunately, we didn't have any music this morning, but in the Lord's providence, it kind of works out because Kevin, who's a dear friend and as long-winded as I am, uh, only had three chapters to deal with for Joel last week. Well, Amos has nine, so I hope you have brought a seatbelt because you need to buckle up. Uh, We are going to be taking a very quick sprint through the whole book of Amos and to see what this minor prophet has for his culture in Israel in the 700s and and also what he has for us in 2019. Um, So hopefully you have found the book of Amos. Hopefully you found the book of Amos. Before we jump into the text though, we need to get some kind of preliminary information so we're all on the same page, right? So who was Amos? Amos was a prophet from Tekoa, not Tekoa, Georgia, but Tekoa in Judah, about five miles south of Bethlehem. So if you just kind of remember your church history, or as our kind of say with Southern Baptist churches, um, we're really good at Old Testament history up until like the divided kingdom, right? We're like, I got Noah, and I got Abraham, and I got Moses, and we got some wilderness, and then we got Joshua, and then we got David, and then we got Solomon, and then we got some stuff, and then we got Nehemiah, and then we got Malachi, right? We, we kind of have this black hole in our knowledge of what happens after Israel splits into two nations, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And a lot of our minor prophets are taking place during this divided kingdom age, okay? So Amos is from the southern kingdom, from Judah, but he's been called to prophesy against Israel, the northern kingdom. And honestly, we don't know much about Amos other than what is revealed in this book. He's not mentioned anywhere else, but he is a shepherd, and he speaks on behalf of the Lord after he is called out from the pastures. Who does that remind you of? King David was a shepherd, and he, though not seen as much by his family, was called out from the pastures to be a voice for God to lead his people. So Amos, we know from just the first few verses that his ministry was in the early 700s BC, so like 790 to 750, okay? And what you need to know, that's not really super important, but what you need to know is in 722, So 40 years or so after Amos, the Assyrians are going to go into northern Israel, ransack it and conquer it, and lead all of Israel into exile. The kingdom of Israel is going to be destroyed in 40 years. So we just need to know kind of where we are historically, because Amos is going to be prophesying some things over the kingdom of Israel in relationship to their sin and how God is going to judge them. And we need to know that God has made good on his word that he means what he says when it comes to judgment and righteousness. So what was the nation of Israel like, and why did Amos need to go and say things to them? Well, under King Jeroboam II, which is who the king is during this time, Israel prospered greatly in terms of wealth. They they were doing amazing financially and in regards to land. They expanded their territory. They flourished massively. This, This nation of Israel was full of possessions and sought comfort. However, this led to being 
um, it led to the king being okay with idolatry. The king would allow the people of Israel to worship and to sacrifice to other gods so that those, those pagan gods might also bless their nation as well as Yahweh. And it led to the poor being oppressed because profit was such a huge motivator in that kingdom and wealth was a huge motivator in that kingdom that it didn't matter what happened to the poor. So a surplus of material wealth led to idolatry and the oppression of the marginalized. What does that sound like? I think the point is, Amos' message is relevant to us today. Just as much as it was relevant to Israel thousands of years ago. So we need to hear Amos' message. There's something for us to hear. And spoiler alert, it's heavy. Uh, The minor prophets are usually not super fun to read. Um, I don't think anybody is like, hey, what's your favorite book of the Bible? And you're like, it's Amos. Right? Sometimes we might say like, it's John, or maybe it's Joshua because he's a conqueror, or maybe it's Genesis because there's so much stuff going on, but not really anybody's going to go, I just love to read about judgment. And that's what the book of Amos is. God is not happy with his people. They've lived outside the bounds of his covenant with them that was received through Moses. And he is promising that judgment will come according to Amos. And we're going to see that as we walk through the text. But let's begin with a a warm-up, all right? Let's talk about the nation. So first, let's read about prophecies against the nations. I'm just going to read the first couple of verses as we get started. So Amos chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon. And him who holds the scepter from Beth-Eden and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kir, says the Lord. Let's just stop there. Um, Amos does not like land the plane smooth and just introduce, you know, like Paul starts his letters by saying like, I'm so thankful for what the Lord's done in your life and thankful for this church and thankful for how the Lord's using you. And usually he waits like a chapter or two before he gets into like the condemnation and rebuke. Amos just says, hey, my name's Amos. I'm a prophet. The Lord is a lion roaring from Zion. Mountains are melting before him. I've got some judgment to talk about today, right? He is (laughs) jumping out quick with rebuke. He introduces the Lord as a king. He introduces the Lord as a judge. We see this in the language that how he utters his voice from Jerusalem and everything else responds to it. And the Lord is judging this nation of Damascus. He is angry with this nation. Why? Because God hates sin. He hates unrighteousness. So Amos is going to lay out prophecies of judgment on seven nations. We're not going to read them all, but just they're very similar to what we just read with Damascus. We're going to read, they would, Amos talks about Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, Moab, and then Judah, the southern kingdom. And every time it says, it starts with the phrase, for three transgressions and for four, 
It's a literary device that highlights the seriousness of the wrongdoing that's being described. It's just a Hebrew literary device. Sometimes we just get hung up on stuff like that. that We're like, for three transgressions and for four. What does that mean? What is the code that I have to unlock? No, just Hebrew literary device. Okay. Very serious judgment being pronounced. So we just read the prophecy against Damascus, but just know for time's sake, understand that all of, all of these nations stand condemned. All of these nations have lived out wickedness and unrighteousness. All of these nations have gone away from and have rejected in their life the character of God, the nature of God. They may not know him, but they hate him. Right? It's Romans 1. But there's another reason why Amos has used these nations in particular. It's not just that Amos is looking around at the world and going, well, God's going to judge you, and God's going to judge you, and God's going to judge you. So kind of use your spatial thinking in your brain for a minute with me and just think about like a map, okay? Damascus and Gaza are northeast and southwest of Israel. Tyre, Edom, Ammon, Moab, and Judah all make a circle around the nation of Israel. So what's Amos doing? He's painting a target. And the bullseye is Israel, the northern kingdom. And that nation gets the greatest judgment because that nation is the greatest transgressor. So these pagan nations have committed unrighteous acts. They've committed wicked deeds. They've lived out their culture in a way that is sinful and heinous, deserves judgment and condemnation. But Israel is going to receive a greater prophecy. So a greater prophecy against Israel. We see this from Amos 2, verse 6, all the way through the end of chapter 6. So let's just read, if you flip over to chapter 2, start in verse 6. Let's read this. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside the altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you out out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press you down in your place. As a cart full of sheaves presses down, flight shall perish from the swift. And the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. This culminating prophecy for Israel is two to three times longer than any of the other nations. So why is their message so severe? It's because they had received the covenant of God. They knew the Lord, and they rejected Him. 
They spurned his holiness and went after pleasure and wealth. They did not seek justice, but comfort. They did not seek righteousness, but mammon. They sold each other into slavery, even though they themselves as a nation were delivered by God from slavery. So this nation of Israel deserves a greater condemnation because they had knowledge of who God was. They had knowledge of His covenant. They had knowledge of His blessing. And they spurned it and rejected it and said, we're going to go our own way and do our own thing. He keeps going. Chapter 3. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. This is God's logic. He's looking at Israel. He's looking at the nations around. He looks at Israel and says, these nations deserve judgment. They deserve condemnation, but you know better. You know better. You have my law. You have my word. And you've rejected it just like them. It reminds me, of Luke chapter 12, verses 47 and 48, where Jesus is talking about servants deserving lesser and greater beatings. Let me just read it for you. It says, And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So the pagan nations were ignorant of the covenant God had given to Israel, but Israel knew the Master's will and rejected it anyway. So what's the application for us? Is not our culture just as guilty? Don't we know better? Do we not have access to God's Word? Do we not have access to the Gospel, the revelation of Jesus Christ? Do we not fear God? Do we believe that wrath is somehow an illusion now that Jesus has come? Because even Jesus says, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. So the truth for Israel's culture and for our culture, whether it's America or wherever else you live or wherever else you may go that has access to the gospel, justice will reign and lawbreakers will be punished. Why? Because sin is antithetical to the nature of God. And he will not allow his good creation to be overrun with brokenness forever. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, but he will by no means clear the guilty. He will not be patient with the wicked forever. And so I don't have any illusion to think that we live in a Christian nation in the sense that we honor the Lord with our existence intentionally. I think the Lord reigns in the heavens and does whatever he pleases. He's the one who puts up and sets down kings and it, we would be foolish not to think that the, the, the country that we live in today was not founded and, and, and founded on and founded by men who love Jesus and believe the gospel. But we've rejected it. We live among a people who's rejected it. Their hearts are hard. And my fear is that in many places, is, is not the church just as guilty. Right? We, we come from churches and we look back and say, I learned some things there and, and I didn't learn these things there. Or I, I know of churches who, who say that they know God, who say that they love God, who say that they have surrendered their lives to the Lord, but by the way that they live, James tells us, right? Fresh water can't come from, a, from salt water. 
Salt water can't come out of a fresh spring. Jesus tells us, right? You, you, look, at an, you look at a fig tree, it's going to produce figs. You know a tree by its fruit. We hear the heart of God in chapter 4. Let me just read, starting in verse 6. You can read along with me. Chapter 4, verse 6. Listen to how God is talking about Israel. Listen to how God is talking about His chosen covenant people. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places and you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain to one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens over in your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses. I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you, as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. So what's God doing here? That's kind of a weird passage to read, but, but see what God is doing. He's disciplining the one that he loves. He's saying, look, I, I rebuked you here and did this, and you didn't come back. And then I did something greater and a little bit more drastic, and you didn't come back. And over and over and over, I've pursued you, and you have not returned to me. So in case any of these Israelites want to cry that God is not merciful or compassionate, we see very clearly that He has pursued His people. That He has used suffering and discipline as a means of grace if they would respond. And they didn't. So now all that remains for them is judgment. All that remains for them is condemnation. They're storing up wrath for themselves. And my fear for us is that we live among a people of unclean lips. We live in a culture filled with people who are lost And God in His compassion and His kindness has allowed in His sovereignty things to exist and things to occur in the lives of men and women that without the Gospel, without the Holy Spirit is just hardening their hearts. And and you and I have been put in a position to be salt and light, to, to describe and to explain and to uncover to your neighbor and to your friend and to your family member Do you know why suffering exists? Do you know why this world is broken as it is? It's because there is a God in heaven 
who is patient, not willing that any should perish. And he's warning you and me of the wrath to come. Friends, we we have neighbors and family members who are storing up wrath. They're storing up wrath. We saw in Luke chapter 12, and we see in the analogy here, that there there will be eternal torment in the judgment. The lake of fire is a place where the smoke infinitely rises, the worm does not die, there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, but we would be fools to think that the the severity of suffering is equal. And if I store up wrath for myself, the judgment will be more severe. There are many reasons for us to share the gospel. There are many reasons for us to go to our neighbor and proclaim the good news of Jesus. One of them is hell is real. One of them is judgment is coming. One of them is one day it will be too late. This is the cry of Amos to Israel, and it should be our cry to the world around us. In chapter 5, God gives Israel the antidote for their spiritual death. He says, seek me and live. Because seeking the Lord, seeking God's face, leads people to love justice and righteousness. The Creator who made the stars and moves the planets. We see that in verse 8. Moves the stars. He who made the Pleiades and the Orion turns deep darkness into the morning. That Creator, that God, that King is offering the wicked life if they would just turn, if they would just repent, if they would just come to Him, if they would just seek His face. Not only are they to seek God, but look in verse 14 of chapter 5. They're to seek good and not evil that they may live. This is the bedrock of the whole law. If we seek the Lord and we obey His commandments, so seek good, blessing will come. Seeking God and seeking true good is one and the same. And under the old covenant of Moses, Israel knew the law. They knew the covenant. They knew the agreement between the nation of Israel and God. God said, if you will seek my face, if you'll love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you'll follow my commands, I will bless you. And I will protect you. And I will keep you. And I will cause you to flourish among the nations of the world. But if you disobey my law... Judgment will come. And they agreed to this. You can go look at the end of Deuteronomy. But here's the the truth. They, They haven't been doing this. They haven't been seeking the Lord. They haven't been obeying His Word. And history tells us they didn't start either. As we reminded you this morning, the beginning, 40 years from this prophecy, the Assyrians will come. And in 722, Israel is conquered and the people are scattered throughout the world in exile. They don't have possessions anymore. They don't have comfort anymore. They don't have that land anymore. They are no longer a united people. Why? Because they disobeyed his word. So look at verse 18 of chapter 5. This is probably the most um, popular or well-known section of Amos. And I, I feel like we should read it. And before we read it, this, this section is made popular because of the civil rights movement, right? Martin Luther King Jr. 
taught from this text, especially verse 24, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And he, he used it rightly as a rallying cry for a nation that was not practicing justice and was not practicing righteousness. But let's start in verse 18. He says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It's darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. That's, in, like, that's insane. There's humor in Scripture. And Amos is making fun of Israel right now. He's saying, why, why do you want the day of the Lord to come? It's darkness for you. You think you're running from a lion, but there's a bear waiting to meet you. Or you went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. Now, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? Let's just stop there. So here, here's the point. God is saying to Israel, and He's saying to you and me, that we can exercise the Christian faith, we can do the right things and be seen as a people who are obedient on the outside. But if our hearts don't long for Him, if our hearts are not filled with a desire for justice and righteousness in this world, justice and righteousness for our King and His law, justice and righteousness for a kingdom full of sin that will one day be no more, it doesn't matter how many good things we do. Our practices, even our righteousness, are like filthy rags. He says he hates their feasts. He takes no delight in their assemblies. He does not accept their offerings. He does not listen to the noise of their songs. Why? Just because they're doing and practicing the right thing does not mean that it honors the Lord. Right? And we know this. We know that there, in an extreme sense, we know that there are churches who claim the name of Jesus who are false churches. Right? They preach a false gospel. They teach wrongly from the Scriptures. We can think of Christian cults in our nation. And so obviously we know that if a false teacher goes to teach the Bible, that does not honor the Lord. Right? Just because he's doing the right thing, just because he's exercising this right practice of opening the Scriptures and say, we want to believe what, what this says, and then proceeds to say something that is not true, even though it sounds good, it doesn't honor the Lord. In the same way, when you and I try to practice our righteousness before men, as Jesus says in Matthew 6, He says, you've already received your reward. That's exactly what Israel was doing. They were trying to keep up appearances. Is that not true of us? Is that true of, of, of Auburn, Alabama? Like we are really good. Really good at keeping up appearances. Right? But it's not real. It's not true. And God sees it. 
God loves justice. He loves righteousness. He despises half-hearted worship. And if we say we love God and want to worship Him and yet our hearts are far from Him, we're just like Israel here. So that's the greater prophecy against Israel. We need to move on. Visions of destruction are next. Chapter 7 through most of chapter 9. So we've got a, a prophecy against the nations a greater prophecy against Israel, and now we see visions of destruction. So in Hebrew language, there are no, there's no comparative and superlative language, right? There's no like good, better, best, or bad, worse, worst. There, there's no like ER and EST words. So, so the way that they emphasize things is through repetition. That's why in Isaiah 6, when you hear the angels, the seraphim cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, that's a big deal. Because saying something three times in a row is about as serious as it can be. So Amos is now getting to a point where he has proclaimed judgment against Israel in chapter 2. He has poetically showed them why they deserve the judgment in chapters 3 through 6. And now he's going to use a different device to communicate the point, and that's visions. So first, we're not going to take a ton of time through these, but first we see a swarm of locusts in the first three verses of chapter 7 coming and destroying the nation. Second, we see a consuming fire in, chapter, in verses 4 through 6. And in both of these cases, we see that the Lord relents. He, he shows Amos, I'm going to do this to the nation. I'm going to destroy the nation this way. I'm going to destroy the nation that way. And Amos intercedes on behalf of the nation and God shows mercy. But the point is that you and I need to see that Israel deserves this. It would be just and right for God to burn it up. Or for locusts to come and destroy everything. So next, we see a, a plumb line in the midst of Israel. You see this in verses 7 through 9. Now, a plumb line is used to measure the straightness of a wall, right? So you would just tie something here. You, it's like a string and there's a little thing at the end. And it would measure how straight something is. And the point of using a plumb line is that Amos and God are showing the nation that they are not straight. They are crooked. They are off their foundation. And the destruction is the destiny of a lopsided place. A, a, a place where a foundation is shifted and where the building is not straight, it can't stand for long. Next, we see a kind of a quick aside. So you're looking at verse 10. We're, again, we're not going to read it because we're flying through at this point, but Amos' authority is challenged by a man named Amaziah, who is a priest of Bethel in Israel. So, it's actually a really interesting example of what Israel has been doing all along, right? Amos, this prophet of God, is pronouncing judgment and calling them to repent. And this priest of Bethel, Amaziah, goes to Amos and tries to silence him. And says, don't, don't prophesy like that here Go, go somewhere else because that's not, we don't want to hear that. This is, a, this is a holy nation. He actually says in verse 16, you, um, yeah, sorry, in verse 12, Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and it is a temple of the kingdom. He was, he was convinced. He was, he was blind. He was, he was not acting as though anything that Amos was saying was real or true. He was saying, hey, we're fine. We're fine. We're good. We, we don't need any of that condemnation. We don't need any of that judgment here. So you can go back to, 
Tekoa or go back to Judah or go back to your kingdom and you talk about those things, but, but don't talk about that here because we're good to go. We're fine. This is a priest in the temple at Bethel. He's a religious leader. What's the point? The culture cannot bear to hear the word of God. And it's the same with us, right? It will, the culture will ask for those people who are proclaiming the word of God to either change their message or move away from the microphone. But here's the truth. Stopping their ears to God's word does not make it untrue. And as we've seen, a willful rejection of God's word leads to great and terrible judgment. So we live among a people who has stopped their ears to the word. And if we're not careful, we may say, well, our proclamation will not be successful because they're not really listening. So let's just not proclaim or let's change up our message or let's kind of adapt to where we are so that they can understand it in a way that makes sense. And, and I'm all for contextualization, right? Paul says we need to be all things to all people. But success in obedience to God is not in how fruitful we are, right? You and I do not decide how fruitful we get to be. Success in the Christian life, success in obedience to God, is how faithful we were to obey His commands. And if God has commanded you and me to go and make disciples of all nations, if He's commanded you and me to go to the ends of the earth and proclaim the gospel, to, to rebuke sin for what it is, to, to call out and cry out against injustice and unrighteousness, as Amos is clearly teaching us here, then the response of a wicked people is not evidence of our success or failure. It's not evidence of our fruitfulness. The fact that we were obedient to God's word, that's being successful in the Christian life. That's faithfulness. That's what we should long for. Next in Chapter 8, we see a very odd vision if we're not reading carefully. It's what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. You're like, what? Well, like fire and locusts and plum lines. Plum lines kind of weird, but now I'm looking at some fruit in a basket. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. And the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere. Silence. Let's just stop there. What is the connection between a basket of summer fruit and the end of Israel where dead bodies are thrown everywhere? It's actually a really clever and powerful language. The word for summer fruit and the word for end in Hebrew are extremely similar. So this vision is actually a play on words for Israel. Amos sees summer fruit and in a way is seeing the end of Israel. And you think about fruit in the summer is overripe and is ready to be discarded and destroyed. It's rotten. It's way past the harvest. And so you're just going to throw it out. And in the same way, if I see a basket of summer fruit, it's going to be destroyed. It's, it's the end. It's, it's over. It's done. And God is saying, yeah, it's the same for this country. It's the same for this nation. It's the same for this people. They're rotten to the core. And they're going to be discarded. The destruction of Israel comes as a result partly of their love for money and profit. It's more important than holy days, more important than the Sabbath, more important than the well-being of the poor. So let's just keep reading in verse 4. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, 
When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? And the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale? And we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. And Amos is showing us, God is showing us through Amos, that that a people that delights in profit and gain more than righteousness and justice will be destroyed. Like rotten, overripe fruit that's tossed on the ground, Israel will be thrown everywhere because of their sin. Now look down at verse 11. Here is the, in my opinion, one of the most dreadful verses. 11 and 12. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro, seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. A famine of hearing the word of the Lord. After exile and return, God would be silent for 400 years. What a judgment. What a judgment to not hear the God who speaks and reveals himself, especially through words. And he sentences his people to live in silence. There's one missionary who said of the church in America, he said, it's amazing what all is accomplished in American churches without the Holy Spirit. So here's the question. Is he silent in our nation? Is he silent in our churches? Has our injustice and our trite compassion towards the poor and our lack of love for our neighbor and our love for money and our idolatrous living, has it shut the mouth of God who speaks? pray that it's not true. I pray that all of us would live lives of repentance. That we would see that while our justification is completely built on the finished work of Jesus, that if the Lord has you in His hand, there is nothing you can do to separate yourself from Him. That the love of God is going to be on you forever. But we would be fools to, to confuse that with living in the fullness of the Spirit and not hearing the word of the Lord and walking in the leadership of the Holy Spirit or quenching the Holy Spirit because of our sin. May it not be said of us. Finally, in chapter 9, verses 1-10, through 10, Amos gives the vision of the destruction of Israel beginning with the temple and its complete destruction. Just like the punishment in Deuteronomy for nations who are an abomination. I don't have to read this, but it's just, it's bad news. Our culture is no better off. We deserve this judgment. We deserve death. Our sin is exceedingly great. We have broken the covenant. You and I have broken the covenant. We live among humanity that has broken the covenant. We have transgressed the law and committed treason against the lawgiver. We cannot seek God well enough for even our, unrighteous, or even our righteousness, like I said earlier, is like filthy rags. Here's the bad news. You and I are too unclean, too broken, and too wicked to do anything about our plight. And that's the giant, resounding proclamation of Amos. He's saying to Israel, you're doomed. You are doomed. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord and there's nothing you can do to come back from it. 
You in and of yourself do not have the power to take what is dead and make it alive again. But praise God, that is not the end of the book. There's good news in Amos because there isn't just visions of destruction, but there's a greater vision of hope. There's a greater vision of hope. It is clearer for us. It is easier for us to see the light in the backdrop of complete darkness. Matt Chandler says, in order for good news to be good, it must invade bad space. Bad news is the backdrop against which good news really shines. And that's what Amos 1.1 through 9.10 is. It is bad, no good, horrible news, but it is not the end of the book. Look at verse 11. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom. Listen to this. And all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. This is the gospel message. that The house of David will be restored. Those who are called from all the nations will gather together under His reign. And God is promising this people rest and prosperity for their land and for their culture. It's coming. There will be more harvest than we'll know what to do with. Right? The treaders of the grapes have so much more work to do that the, the sowers of the seed can't keep up. The mountains will flood with blessing. The fortunes of God's people will be restored. They will return to their land. But, but what do we know? Amos is talking about a greater land. I don't think he's talking about a spit between modern-day Turkey and modern-day Egypt. I think he's talking about a greater country. I think he's talking about a new kingdom, a new creation, a place where we will dwell with God forever, a place where we will see our king face to face. This is a promise in verses 11 through 15 of the new heavens and the new earth brought about by the return of Jesus, the true king, the one from the booth of David. He seeks us out. He calls us by name. And he brings all the nations into his new covenant family. He promises us a citizenship. We are true Israel. We are truly the people of God. He promises us a new land, which is new creation. And he promises us a new and better king himself. Justice and righteousness will flow like a stream, but it will flow from the river of God. And so if you are in Christ, that's your hope. That's your future. That mercy will triumph over judgment. And all throughout Amos, God is referred to as the Lord, Yahweh, or the Lord God, over and over and over and over again. It's nothing but His, His 
His holy revealed name, his, his name of his sovereignty and his control and his lordship, and it's objective. Has no relational value. He is Yahweh Adonai. He is the Lord God Almighty. But right here, verse 15, something changes. Hope floods the darkness of the last eight and a half chapters because Amos ends by referring to God as the Lord, your God. Your God. I'll fly over that. He has called you and me to be His. God will by no means clear the guilty. The price of sin will be paid. And Jesus offers to pay it and to save us from the wrath to come. The day of the Lord is darkness, but it does not have to be darkness for you. It does not have to be terrible judgment. It can be salvation and joy. So the question that we have to wrestle with is, do we long for that day and do we live in light of that day? Do you ache for a time when the downcast and the oppressed are dignified? Do you long for an end to slavery? Do you want justice to reign rather than injustice? More than all of those good things in the world that we can advocate for and long for and fight for, but more than all of those earthly things, do you want God to be glorified rightly? Do you yearn to worship Him without the hamper of sin, without the foggy vision of unglorified eyes? Do you want to see Him face to face? So I know we're going to spend like five minutes discussing this in your groups, probably not even that. My challenge for you is to pray. To pray that we would see the weight of our sin. To pray that we would understand the weight of glory that awaits us in Christ. To pray that we would be ambassadors of God's kingdom on earth. To pray that we would urgently tell the world that there's a way to be saved from the coming wrath. To pray that Jesus would come quickly. And to pray that His kingdom would come in its fullness. That's the book of Amos. A lot of bad news so that the good news might shine all the more clearly. Let's pray.